0: We started last week working through the Apostles' Creed. I hope as a community that this is something that brings us unity, that when we find something that we uh, agree on, it, it builds space for, for more unity. And what, I, what we love about the Apostles' Creed is it's pretty open, it's big. Um, it leaves room. And since we haven't been able to gather and, and speak or sing together, I would love it if you would, would read along with me as, as I recite or I read the Apostles' Creed. You can join me if you like. Um, we're going to put it up on the screen so that you can do that with us. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So today we begin the first of five statements about Jesus. And I find it really interesting in the Apostles' Creed that the early church focused so much on Jesus. There are five statements around him. And yet there's only one statement around God the Father and God the Spirit. And this is because Jesus is essential for us to see who God the Father is and who the Spirit is. He's the focal point for us. He's what we look at to see the character of God. That is why here we often say we interpret the rest of the Bible through Jesus. He is the only one who lived according to God's will. He didn't give in to selfishness. He saw from God's perspective, not like us who only see with human eyes. James P. Danaher writes, Jesus provides a perspective that is both human and more than human. A perspective like no other. Jesus, in being both divine and human, provides not just a revelation of God, but the ultimate revelation of how human beings should understand God. So we look at Jesus today. We look at the statement, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And I'm going to just pull them apart a little bit. We're going to look at them in three sections. Jesus Christ, or as I, I prefer to say, Jesus the Christ, because we often say Jesus Christ is like it's his name. Like Christ is Jesus' last name. It's probably more like Jesus Joseph's son or, or something like that. But really the name Christ or the, the title was something important. It was, it was the name, the title of the one that was given to the one who would save them. It meant the anointed one, the Messiah, and it still does. And when Jesus is traveling through Samaria, he has this amazing encounter with a woman at a well. From John 4 25 to 26, we we see part of this interaction. The woman says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. It's one of the few times where jesus actually accepts this title of the christ or the messiah we have to see that in this interaction that the jewish people hated the samaritans and i'm pretty sure the feeling was mutual the samaritans followed part of what the written uh, law that that the jews that the jews used but they didn't follow all of it so they only followed the first five books of the old testament they worshipped in a different location and they had their own priesthood. And this caused lots of issues between them. John four twenty one to 24 says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. I find it interesting that the Samaritan woman who was rejected, not liked by the Jews, recognized what so many of us missed, or still do miss. The Messiah isn't for one people group, but for the whole universe, for all of creation. She knew that the Messiah was coming. She believed He would make it all clear. And there he was, right in front of her. A Jew and a Samaritan go to a well. Kind of sounds like the start of a bad joke, doesn't it? But it turns out to be the image of Christ loving an outsider. Colossians 1 15 to 20. It's a powerful description of Christ. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Listen to those statements. He existed before everything and is supreme over all creation. Everything was created through him and for him. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth. Those are huge statements, big. They encompass the entire universe. Everything was created through him and for him, everything was reconciled by him. And on top of that, universal everything, all things, there's a timelessness to this, there's a timelessness to Christ. We kind of tend to think of of Jesus as, as the man becoming the Christ when he decides to lay down his will. But it's more than that. It's that Christ became man. He existed before creation. He is the beginning. So Jesus did not choose to become the Christ when he died for us, but it is more that Christ became the Son, became man. He existed before creation. And he did it so that, he became man so that we could, we could see God, that he would be revealed to us more clearly. And why do I say more clearly? Because the way I see it, God has always been trying to reveal himself to us. We're just too busy, too distracted to notice. That's why we have that saying, stop and smell the roses. Romans 1.20 says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and His divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. If God's plan is to reveal Himself to us, to everyone, wouldn't it make sense that He would hide Himself in everything He created? What a great way to reveal Himself. I pick up a rock and I see God there. I shovel the snow and there He is. I pass by someone bleeding in the ditch, and I miss him. But I see him as I'm blinded by the morning sun. Many of us think that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. It's kind of funny or true that humans would think of ourselves as people-centric, or God as people-centric. But it is this thing that I think people have that is beautiful, the ability to both reveal and discover God's presence John 1.4 says the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. So also God revealed, is revealed in each one of us. His life brought light to everyone. Christ is the image or the logo of God. We are made in the image and likeness of God, so Christ is hidden in each one of us. In some ways, this is, the most amazing thing I find in following Jesus. First, we recognize that the Christ, the one who is in all, who sustains all and reconciles all, we see him. And then we begin to see his image in ourselves. Not a photocopy, not an exact image, but a hand-drawn attempt. And then we see him in others. We see him in trees, we see him in the sky, on the earth. His light in us reveals light everywhere. Genesis 1, to 1-4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. In the beginning, this light of God the light of Christ. It was first. God spoke and light burst forth. And the, in the creation account, it says that God separated the light from the darkness, which we know is true. However, he also allowed light to shine in the darkness. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm not much of a scientist, but I was reading about neutrinos. Uh, Richard Rohr talks about this in his book, The, The Universal Christ. And neutrinos are these particles that come from the sun, from supernovas, from history. They're everywhere. They exist in the deepest, darkest hole. At the bottom of the ocean, they exist everywhere. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the interaction with this woman at the well, Jesus, the light, Himself finds light in a place that most would have considered darkness. Jesus the Christ. We come to the next part of this, the first statement, and that's God's only Son. And we have to get away from thinking about Son as being male or female. I know that uh, gender conversation is charged right now. But it's an important image for a community of people for whom sons were of great importance. The importance of Jesus being the only son, the only one, not multiple, it can't be understated, right? If we think of the story of of, uh, Jacob and Esau, we can see how siblings quarrel and how they can fight over the attention of their father and, and for their inheritance. I'm going to read an awful verse from Deuteronomy, but bear with me. Deuteronomy 21:15-17 Suppose a man has two wives but he loves one and not the other and both have given him sons and suppose the firstborn son is the, wife, the son of the wife he does not love when the man divides his inheritance he may not give the larger inheritance to his younger son the son of the wife he loves as if he were the firstborn son he must recognize the rights of the oldest son the son of the wife he does not love by giving him a double portion he is the first son of his father's virility and the rights of the firstborn belong to him. Like I said, it's not the greatest, but I'm just trying to highlight the fact that for whatever reason, the Hebrew people and most of history have held the firstborn son in high esteem. And they received the greatest amount of inheritance, double, it said, to the other children in Deuteronomy. They carried the name, they carried the weight, the authority of the father, This seems to me like a good way to start problems, but it's how they did things. The firstborn son was the image of the Father. The one who carried on the Father's name carried the authority forward. And Jesus is called the firstborn, as we see in Colossians 1.15. We've already read this, but I'll read this section. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The most important image here is in Jesus as God's Son, is that of relationship, of the connection. Just as Jesus called God Abba, or Father, in a relational way, Jesus as God's Son points to the familial relationship, the connection, Father and Son. And I know that there are many Father and Son relationships that are not good, but this is the image of a loving Father and a loving son or daughter. I think of Amazing moments with my own kids. Those moments of connection. And they're nothing compared to this relationship between God and His Son. Jesus carries that authority of his Father. It says in Matthew twenty eight, eighteen, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the image of God. When we see him, we see God. Just the other day, I was meeting with my mom and one of her friends, and her friend looked at me and said, wow, you look just like your dad. My dad probably would have said, wow, you must be very handsome. But this, this thought of looking like our father is very similar to Jesus being God's only son. I look like my dad, and people compare my mannerisms and my voice especially when i call when i hear myself on the phone it sounds exactly like him but just like that the father and the son are alike jesus is the logos the logo the image the idea of god his actions his attitudes and mannerisms are god's in matthew 3:16 and 17 we see his baptism After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly beloved Son, who brings me great joy. I love that. This is my dearly beloved Son, who brings me great joy. The image of a dearly loved Son reminds me, and should remind us, of the beautiful relationship between God and Jesus. We come to the last part of this statement, our Lord. And this, to me, is really the center of the entire creed. All things hinge here. We can make claims about God, his likeness, who he is, who the Spirit is, even who Jesus is. But it is when we put our hope in Jesus, who is the image of the Father, the embodiment of the Spirit, that we make this claim. He is our Lord. Romans 10, 1 to th- 11 to 13. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same, is lo- same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love the openness of this. Our Lord. We see this collectively, not individually. Just like Jesus says, our Father in his prayer. There is no other Lord, no other savior. He is our Lord collectively. All of creation is reconciled to him, our Lord. And I love that the early church didn't make this individual, even though it was an individual being baptized. To keep the early convents, converts mind away from self, they said, our Lord and I wonder if they even knew that they did it, right? It seems to me that the early church didn't have the same fascination with the individual like we do. Maybe it didn't even cross their mind to say, my Lord. But with strong images like a living temple, a people of God, and a body of Christ, our Lord makes sense. It's strengthening. When Jesus is Lord of our lives, we should act like him, love like him, Remembering that we are human and we sometimes get it wrong. Matthew seven, twenty-one to twenty-three reads, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. We prof- oh, sorry, on judgment day, many will say to me. Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. I know this passage is scary for some people. You know, what if that happens to me? What if I get to the end of my life and I'm rejected? But this passage helps me to focus differently. I often long to prophesy to cast out demons, to perform miracles. And those, not that those are bad things, but my focus should simply be on loving God and loving others, doing the will of God. Our Lord has a call to follow in his footsteps. As Jesus said to his disciples, come, follow me. And we need to remember where Jesus' footsteps led him. They led him to a cross That doesn't seem as appealing to me as prophesying exorcisms or miracles. Our Lord's steps to the cross went through the wilderness. They traveled to places and people that his culture rejected and thought were unclean and dirty. His footsteps went to tables of the rejected and the unclean. Our Lord gave up his rights as God himself. He let go of privilege, status, and power, and he calls us to do the same. My question for us today as a community is, what would we look like if Jesus was truly our Lord? How would the world respond? How loving would we be? Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord.